This classic Encounters podcast is brought to you by Encounters North. To learn more about our podcast videos and projects and to support our work, please visit EncountersNorth.org. Hi, I'm Richard Nelson for Encounters, a program of observations, experiences, and reflections on the world around us. It's a cool morning, glorious sunrise coming up in one of the Earth's most alluring wild places. I'm in Tasmania. It's a rugged, mountainous island about 100 miles or so off the far southern coast of Australia. Mountains all around, and I'm in the middle of a very broad, grassy meadow. Well, it's grassy, but the grass is clipped pretty darn short. It's almost like a gulf green and the reason it's clipped short is because of a lot of animals I see around me right now. A lot happening out here as the day comes on. Birds starting to fling back and forth. You can hear the beautiful voice of the Australian butcher bird, common songbird here in this part of the world. Well it's not windy this morning but I'll bet you it won't be too long before that breeze comes up. Tasmania is situated in those latitudes called the Roaring Forties, an area where perpetual gales blow across thousands of miles of unfettered open ocean. If you look south from the southern end of Tasmania, the next land that you would hit is Antarctica. And if you go east or west from here, the only land you would bump into going all the way around the planet is New Zealand and South America. Well, Australia is really out here too. The remoteness and the isolation of Australia has led to the evolution and survival of a lot of kinds of animals found nowhere else in the world. Creatures like gray kangaroos, paddy melons and wallabies, the koala, the platypus. Australia is one of those places that has animals that we've all heard about and just aren't found anywhere else in the world. And then there's the animal that I'm keeping pretty close company with right now. It's a curious, fascinating, one-of-a-kind critter that only lives in Australia. Well, what I've come upon here is a wombat. It's about 40 yards or so away from me. And I'm going to try to ease a little bit closer very carefully, not to frighten him or her away. From a distance, you see... The very stout, hefty, and distinctly barrel-shaped body of the wombat. And it's propped up on very short, very strong-looking legs. It's a build that's similar, I would say, to a pig from a distance when you see it in profile. Or actually more like bears. There's several wombats scattered across the meadow here. And they remind me for all the world of the brown bears that come out to feed in the meadows along the Alaska coast in the deep green grass of summer. Well, I think this would be deep green grass here too if it weren't cropped so tightly by all these hungry animals around here, including our wombat. As we get a little closer to it now, whoa, now there's a surprise just off to my left as I'm walking along a little ditch here about 25 feet away, there's a wombat 
looking straight at me and face on, my goodness, does it ever look like a little bear. It's actually not a, a little animal. It's fairly good size, lifting its nose, looking straight at me. Thick brown fur, a very big broad head, and almost no discernible neck at all. And as it looks straight at me, I can see the great big leathery end of its nose looks like the sole of a bear's foot. And as it turns to the side now, quite a large behind there and a tail so short on the end of that rounded stern that the tail is pretty much invisible. And I can see on all four of its feet very strong claws. This is an animal that's built for digging. And now face on what really strikes you as you look right into the eyes of a wombat is how much it looks like a koala. Yeah, that's not entirely surprising because the koala is the closest relative of the wombat, although our wombat somehow looks a little bit more serious, more determined, maybe, maybe more business-like than your average koala. This wombat can't quite decide what to do about me. I'm standing perfectly still and talking softly in hopes that it'll stay here and not take refuge in a burrow that's very close to it here. Now the name wombat that somehow has a life all its own. Everybody knows that word wombat. It's as if it was invented somehow to be contagious and unforgettable. It comes from an Australian Aboriginal language. It was first recorded back in the 1790s by a British naturalist named George Bass. Most of the British settlers during those earlier times called wombats badgers because they have a vaguely similar shape to the European badger and more likely because both of these animals spend much of their time down in burrows. Actually, some of the older rural Tasmanian folks still call wombats badgers. I'm easing very slowly a little bit closer to our wombat, and I have to say, it also looks like a seriously oversized woodchuck or maybe a marmot that lives up in the north country of Alaska and Canada. But there's a huge difference. The wombat belongs to a distinctive order of mammals that are called marsupials. A key feature that our wombat shares with all other marsupials, including those two kangaroos just off to my right, the more distant wallabies and paddy melons, that key feature is a pouch, much like the one that's so famous in the kangaroo. In fact, there are about 130 species of marsupials living here in Australia. Now, like some other marsupials, our wombat, which is walking very slowly along in the bottom of the ditch here, our wombat's pouch opens toward the rear, backward, not like the one that the kangaroos have that opens in the front or on the top. This is an advantage, this backward-facing pouch for a burrowing animal like the wombat because it keeps it from filling up with dirt. Can you hear that right now? Australian forest ravens. Listen to that very distinctive call of theirs. Now this wombat is pretty good size and pretty fat. They get up to about three feet long, stand about 18 inches tall, and can weigh as much as 80 pounds. So a good-sized wombat, about as big as your average junior high student, I guess. 
It looks very powerful. The wombat for all the world could be a weightlifter. They use their heavy body and strong shoulders for digging and that thick broad skull that's almost as wide as the body of the animal itself. They can use that just to shove aside rocks or logs when they're burrowing down in these many many burrows. In fact I'm gonna walk right up to a burrow here as our wombat is moving along. Big entrance. Boy, you feel like you could just about crawl inside that thing. It's a good-sized burrow. More about that later. Looking down into this burrow now, if a fox or a dingo, that's an Australian wild dog, should chase a wombat into a burrow, could end up with a very bad ending for that predator because the wombat will use its powerful legs and its thick pelvis to squash any threat up against the roof of the tunnel can literally crush the skull of a fox or a dingo. So as the book says, don't crawl down into a wombat's burrow. Could have a very disappointing end for you. Our friend that we're following along here is called the common wombat. It's only found in the southeastern corner of Australia and down here on the island of Tasmania. But there are lots of them. They're successful and adaptable animals. They live in many kinds of habitats, from coastal forests to high mountain meadows. They also like to live around the pasture lands where people raise cattle and sheep. Well, if you don't see a wombat itself, it's pretty darn easy to tell if they're around because as we see all along the ditch here, the burrow openings, very conspicuous. And then there's the unmistakable calling card of an Australian wombat. And we've got a lot of it right here, dry, dark chocolate-colored cube-shaped droppings. Every Australian knows at least this one bit of nature trivia. As the Aussies say, wombat poo is square. It's like a smaller version of kids' blocks. I see some just right here. I'll bend down. It's nice and dry. I'll pick it up. It's actually just as light as a piece of styrofoam. How in the world they do this, nobody seems to know. It's a miracle of nature. Now the wombat has moved up onto the side of the ditch into a little patch of greener grass, sniffing around and scratching the dirt just a bit and then moves on, kind of waddles along. Interesting gait it has with the head kind of wagging back and forth and the tail doing the same thing, kind of a swaying gait, the back a little bit hunched. Those legs are short, but I know for a fact from walking out here that when a wombat decides to cover territory, it can really move out. They can run as fast as a human can. I'm in a place called Narantapu National Park along the coast of Tasmania. And as I look around the meadow here, I can see one, two, three, four, five, there's a sixth wombat scattered pretty widely across this meadow. Wombats don't particularly like to be in each other's space. So this place is a candidate for the wombat capital of the world. If you want to see a wombat, you go to Narantapu National Park. Sometimes in the winter they say there can be up to 30, 40, 50 wombats out in these meadows taking advantage of the cool days. Otherwise they like to stay active at night. Well, Australia has an amazingly diverse array of marsupials, over 100 species, as I mentioned. Now, the rest of the world is almost completely dominated 
by another kind of mammal altogether called the placentals. These two kinds of animals have different ways of producing and nurturing their young. In the placental animals, the embryo develops inside the womb. We're very familiar with that. Dogs, moose, squirrels, shrews, bears, and humans all have that kind of reproductive system. The marsupials, on the other hand, birth happens at an embryonic stage. The tiny little young crawls up into the pouch of its mother, and most of its development happens there inside the pouch. Now, I've moved up to about 20 feet away from our wombat. I'm standing still because looking at me now and turns directly away, goes back to feeding on the grass. In fact, I can even hear the crunching sound as it chews away at the grass here. Why is Australia so different from everywhere else? Why the domination of the marsupials here? Well, countless millions of years ago, Australia was part of an immense supercontinent called Gondwana land. At the same time, incidentally, there was another supercontinent on the northern part of the world called Laurasia. Now, those two great land masses gradually separated in the process that's familiar to most of us called continental drift. Gondwana land, the southern supercontinent, split up gradually over long periods of time into what is today Africa, India, New Zealand, South America, Antarctica, and Australia. Now, the final split happened between Australia and Antarctica about 50 million years ago. And now imagine the continent of Australia like a giant raft carrying its cargo of plants and animals off into its own independent existence, and that included the ancestral marsupials. Now, there are still a few species of marsupials living in South America and one in North America. That's the familiar opossum. Actually, it looks as if, from the fossil evidence, the marsupials originated in North and or South America. Apparently, what happened was that the placentals outcompeted and displaced most of the marsupials back in North and South America. But here in Australia, the marsupials prevailed, they thrived, they evolved into a glorious array of species. Marsupials fill here in Australia most of the ecological niches occupied by placental mammals in other parts of the world. For example, our two gray kangaroos over here. These are grazers. They occupy the same ecological niche as deer do in North America. There are leaf eaters, the koalas, fruit eaters, the possums, gliders, very similar to flying squirrels that live here in Australia. Quite a few species of those. There are even tree kangaroos that occupy the same kind of niche as monkeys. And then here's our little friend, the wombat, similar to the marmot and the woodchuck in North America. Well, the marsupials and the placentals simply represent two fundamental ways of meeting the imperatives of life. Incidentally, the marsupial way of reproducing and raising young inside a pouch might in fact be more flexible and adaptable that's because our kangaroos or our wombat here, who's paying no attention at all to me right now, 
These animals can have one young at the foot, independent grazing on grass, and another one developing inside the womb. And in fact, even a third one, a suspended embryo inside their body. So if it happens to lose one of those young, it's got a replacement ready to go right now. So it's perhaps a better way in terms of long-term survival to use this marsupial system. Now our wombat has let me get pretty darn close. Now I've very carefully eased up. Whoop. Kind of turns and looks at me. It's gotten used to me, and I guess it's tolerant of this guy talking about it here. Scratching away at the dirt and moving into some taller, very dry vegetation. Nuzzling down, eating again. Well, this is the crux of the wombat's evolutionary design. Its main diet is grasses. Wombats also eat roots. They'll munch away at herbs, at shrubs. Sometimes they'll nibble bark. And apparently a delicacy for wombats is moss. Let me just see if I can... I'm sneaking up really close to it here. Right behind it in this dry vegetation. It doesn't seem to care a bit about me practically leaning over it, and I really could touch it if I wanted to. Let me put the microphone down, and listen, you can hear the sound of it. Hear that chewing? Whoops. <laughs> Turns and looks back at me with those little eyes saying, hang on, Buster, that was close enough. Well, our wombat has an extremely efficient metabolism. It's about three times better than the metabolism of a kangaroo, and kangaroos are famous for their ability to thrive on sparse food. The gut capacity of a wombat, about one-third greater than other herbivores their size. These animals know how to live on sparse vegetation. Many cattle growers here in Australia get very cranky about wombats. The main problem is these burrows. There's one of them right next to me now as I'm walking along to keep pace with our waddling wombat here. The main problem is that cows can get injured. They can sprain or break their legs when they burst down through the roof of a wombat burrow. Also, wombats cause another kind of problem. They'll dig under the fences that farmers use to keep rabbits out of their fields. And the rabbits use those tunnels to get into the fields and munch away at the crops. Wombats, especially in earlier times, were killed. They were shot, trapped, poisoned in the thousands as pests. And they vanished from large areas of Australia where they used to live. In fact, they're still not in many of those places today. But they are now mostly protected where they do exist. Our wombat, on the other hand, seems to feel pretty darn secure around me. I've backed off a little. It's about 10 feet away and down in this little gentle grassy gully. And I'm walking along here just to keep up with it. And our two gray kangaroos off here to the left. Beautiful sunrise. I can't wait for that sun to splash down over the meadow here. Warm me up just a little bit. Wow, here is a big wombat burrow. Two entrances, big pile of 
sand out the front of it. Wombats are impressive subterranean architects. Their burrows can be fairly simple affairs, just a straightforward tunnel about 10 feet long or so, or they can be a pretty elaborate network or system of tunnels totaling up to 100 yards long and about six feet down underneath the ground. Oftentimes there's several nest rooms back in here, nice to imagine, lined with nice soft vegetation. Wombats know how to live. And these burrows are very adapted to the Australian climate. Of course, it can get very hot here in the summertime. When it's 100 degrees outside, studies have shown that down inside the wombat's burrow, temperatures around the mid-70s, nice and comfortable. And when it's below freezing outside, as it sometimes gets to be in the winter here, much warmer down inside that burrow. Well, in order to build these big systems of burrows, wombats are keeping pretty busy down there under the ground. They always seem to be enlarging and altering their castle. Each wombat typically has several burrows and it'll move around between one and the other, sometimes multiple burrows just during the course of a single night. And usually they spend the daytime down inside the burrows. I'm surprised that our wombat here, very close by now, hasn't decided to take shelter as the day comes on. The sun now, oh, feels good as it's just come above the mountain ridge here. During the cool winter days, wombats will sometimes stay active outdoors, but that's not typical. Another thing about wombats, again looking at our little bunch of them scattered widely across the meadow, they like solitude. They're often grumpy toward each other, aggressive postures, growling, chasing each other around, fighting. Each wombat marks its own territory, saying, hey, come on, this is my place, get out of here. They've got scent that they rub on logs and branches and high spots, and these piles of cube-shaped wombat poo, and I've got quite a bunch of it right here in front of me right now. They lay that on top of any mound or on bare spots, any place where they can set up their wombat version of a no trespassing sign. Go away, that's what these piles of square droppings mean to another wombat. Now incidentally, studies show that wombats often travel several miles over the course of a night. They're wanderers. I imagine as night comes down across meadows like this one here in Narantapu National Park, anything but lifeless and quiet as hundreds of these wallabies and paddy melons, the gray kangaroos, the wombats, the Tasmanian devils come out to carry on their lives. It's a good reminder that so much that happens in our world completely escapes our attention. Wombats are so abundant here in Narantapu National Park that they're perhaps more tolerant of each other than they would be normally. A bit like bears, I think, that feed together along salmon streams. Kind of a nervous truce seems to apply among these animals. But there are still plenty of confrontations, as I've seen myself, as these wombats insist on defending some semblance of personal space. Well, like all other animals, solitude has its limits. There has to be a time for wombat love. Wombats mate throughout the year in most of Australia, although down here in Tasmania, they seem to prefer the cozy nights of winter for their romance. As with animals like moose or bears or dogs, the male wombats have to wait until the female comes into estrus. But the secrets of wombat romance eluded biologists until pretty recently 
captive wombats just wouldn't breed. Well, perhaps there's an important clue. A researcher who was using an infrared camera filmed wombats mating in the Australian wilds, and he discovered a surprising love ritual. Here's how it goes. First, the female runs around in big circles and often in figure eight shapes with the male chasing close along behind. Then she lets him catch up. When he does, he bites her powerfully on this ample behind that the wombats have. And then the two animals lay on their sides to mate. And then more circles, more figure eight chases. They mate again. And that's how it happens repeatedly during the Australian night. Now this ritual needs lots of space, about an acre. Here seems to be the key because when zookeepers created big enough enclosures, the whole thing happened just as it was supposed to and the wombats finally produced young in captivity. The single baby wombat is born less than a month later naked, embryonic, about the size of a jelly bean. That little thing crawls through the fur of its mother from the birth canal up into the pouch, and there it attaches onto one of two nipples inside her pouch, and it grows there on the rich milk of its mother. It takes about eight months until that little animal grows enough to be fully furred and starts to come out and nibble on grass. The little wombat will stay with its mom until it's about a year and a half old. Pretty long dependency for an animal this size, and then off it goes on its own. Now the female wombat, because of that long dependency, has a single offspring about every two years. So it's a pretty slow reproductive rate. Wombats probably live, incidentally, to be 10 or 15 years old in the wild, maybe up to 20 years old, if all goes well. Our wombat right now waddling along, and I'm keeping pace with it. Two gray kangaroos just hopped off into a big thicket of ferns and shrubs over here. The wombat now, oh, there's a burrow. Probably thinking it's time to head for shelter. Well, wombats in a national park like here at Narantapu are living a pretty secure life, but in many areas, one main cause of wombat death is cars. It's really common to see dead wombats along the roadsides in Australia. Incidentally, if the animal is freshly killed, it's always a good idea to stop and have a look because if it hasn't been there for long, you can check inside the pouch if it's a female and you might find a live little baby wombat inside there. Interesting thing here in Australia, there's a network of volunteers called Wildlife Carers who take care of orphans from all kinds of animals, kangaroos, wallabies, possums, Tasmanian devils, and of course, wombats like ours right here. I've visited several of these carers over the years, and it's amazing to be around these impossibly cute little critters. Wombats, I'd have to say, are among the most endearing of them all. Playful, sweet, snuggly, cuddly little animals. Eventually, those carers will take the animals that they've raised and release them into the wild. Our little wombat, well, not so little actually. Oh, it's about four feet away from me right now. and I've walked up very close to it, nibbling again on the grass. You hear it? Well, Australia, amazing place. It's inhabited by 
a lavish, endlessly intriguing community of animals that are unique to this continent. Of course, animals like the kangaroo, the platypus, the koala, they're among the most widely known and universally loved creatures anywhere in the world. And others, like our wombat here, well, they're only names for most people. But behind every name, there's the story of an animal that's taken millions of years to evolve. An animal that has its own exquisitely complex way of life. An animal that fits meticulously into its environment, that's a member of an elaborate community. An animal that holds more mysteries than we are ever going to unravel. Maybe it's the mysteries that intrigue me above everything else. What a pleasure to follow this animal around on this morning in the wild country of Tasmania. Turns and takes a look at me. Like its more famous cousin, the koala, most people who are lucky enough to meet with a wombat just can't help falling in love with it. I gotta say, I'm about ready to start running around in figure eights here in the meadows of Narantapu National Park. For encounters, I'll leave it at that. Here in the wombat capital of Australia, I'm Richard Nelson. I want to thank you so much for your good company, and I'll see you next time. is a production of the Island Institute and KCAW in Sitka, Alaska. This program was written and narrated by Richard Nelson, edited and produced by Lisa Bush, special consulting from Ken Fate, the music by Outback. Encounters is funded by the National Science Foundation and by the Kenneth Johnson Family Foundation, the North Pacific Research Board, and Robert Osborne, Jerry Tone, Martha Wyckoff, and Sue Cohen. For more information about the show and to hear podcasts, go to encountersnorth.org. Thank you.